I want ten adjectives that are positive. It's nominating no, Nirvana Williams from Zanhudon and pulled it out as a Nevada, uh, in America. And he has got five children with uh, me, and we are very tired. <laughs> Declutter here in the front. that work? I think that works. Hey everybody, so good to be with you guys. Where am I? Here we go. <laughs> what a gorgeous day on Sunday. Oh, thank you. Well done, Kambani, hey, for leading worship this morning. <laughs> thank you. My goodness, what a cool city we live in, hey? Driving here. We're going to um, Seapoint Beach after this as a family. Then we're going to my mom for lunch. So many cool things. I didn't tell Julie, but I snuck my surfboard in the car. <laughs> High tide at 12.40 or whatever it is. <laughs> so I've learned. You just say, hey, can we go to the beach? You don't say, can we go surfing? <laughs> then she gets there. She's like, what's that in the car for? Anyway, this morning I had a thought. I'm either crazy or I'm not. I mean, it, it, it could be deemed crazy to talk to Jesus every day of your life. And he lived 2,000 years ago. Maybe I'm a bit crazy to be quite excited this morning to come be with you guys and to worship Jesus. I mean, maybe we are crazy. Uh, but then again, maybe we're not. And I'd like to uh, tell you my message why I think that Jesus is alive from the Bible. And we're going to look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20 says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So it's Easter morning, the first Easter. At the moment, she's got no idea that she is in history's most important moment, that you know, 2,000 years later, there's 3.8 million churches gathered around the world preaching these passages from the Bible that tell the story of her experience. But Jesus' body had been lying there since, since Friday evening, Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, what a surprise she and her friends were in for. She arrives to find the stone rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. Her first theory is somebody's broken open the tomb and stolen the body. And she's absolutely devastated. Grave robbing was quite popular in the first century, and she can't believe that the one she loves, Jesus, has been stolen. His corpse has been stolen. The first thing we learn about the resurrection of Jesus is that the resurrection of Jesus is a rebooting of creation. A rebooting of creation. And why does John mention on the first day, he mentions it twice, on the first day, on the first day, usually the other writers of the Gospels, they speak about how on the third day Jesus rose again from the dead. You know, Friday, first day, Saturday, second day, Sunday, third day. No, he wants to emphasize first day. The symbolism is clear enough. Jesus' resurrection has begun a new era in the scheme of God. You see, the first day was understood as the day of creation. You know, the first chapter in the Bible, God creates the vast universe on the first day. And the scene is set then for the development of that creation. 
Well, in the same way, Jesus rises again on the first day, and uh, his resurrection speaks of a new beginning, a rebooting. Yeah, sure. What are we doing? Okay, sorry. Thank you. Okay, above me. Great. Um. <laughs> speaks about a rebooting of creation. The renewal of all things. Jesus' resurrection, what happens there, he gets a brand, he gets made new. I mean, he is properly killed on Friday, properly tortured and executed. He's got this new body that's immortal, that'll never die again. And what happens to Jesus' body is a picture of what will happen to the entire universe. The Bible even says, it's what will happen to your body if you trust in Jesus. And quite a radical promise. By the way, that's why the church meets on Sundays. You know that uh, Christians came out of Judaism originally. Jews met on Saturdays, the Sabbath. And uh, the reason was, well, Jesus rose again, not on the Sabbath. He rose again on the Sunday. So from now on, we're going to meet on the Sunday. In fact, a guy called Justin Martin, 8155, wrote a book in which he explained why Christians met on the Sundays. He says, we all hold this common gathering on Sundays since it's the first day on which God transformed darkness and matter and made the universe, and it's the day Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. Then we carry on, verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Interestingly, John is writing this about himself. This is John's gospel. And he mentions twice that he ran faster than Peter. A little bit of sibling rivalry there, like I could run faster than him. But also he's implying that he was extra devoted to Jesus. <laughs> Peter took a break here and there. Not him. He's got to get there. But then he admits he gets there and he just can't go in. He can look, but he can't go in. We don't know why. Maybe it's just too emotional, the whole experience. And Peter is usually the guy who goes first the first out of the boat, is the first to speak, is the first to react. And he's like, Peter, you go first. Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. <laughs> he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth that was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's John. Mentioned, you mentioned it twice now. Did I mention I, I beat him? <laughs> also went inside. He saw and he believed. They still did not understand what scripture, uh, this, from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. The second thing we learn about the resurrection of Jesus, not only is it a rebooting of creation and your life, if you trust in him, but, but it's Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus leaves some evidence. It leaves some evidence. What is this picture of this linen that's lying where Jesus' body was? What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, is, is this a way of saying that Jesus' head passed through the cloths, leaving them rolled as they were, like a, like a you know, a, a what? A, no, like a chrysalis, you know? A chrysalis is left in place. Is that what it's saying? By the way, Jesus had a physical body. He could touch it. He could eat. But he, we know that he could pass through a wall. So there's something supernatural about this physical body. Is this the first sign? He could literally just... That could be what it's saying. Or it could mean that he got up and he had the time to just unwind it. And then to wind it nicely together, fold it neatly. We don't know what 
this is trying to say, but either way, we have a miracle on our hands. Jesus is alive. The evidence is there. Uh, he's, and, and John sees it. He's not 100% sure Jesus is alive, but he's like, okay, I think I believe. I, I believe. I suggest that the evidence for us 2,000 years later is great for the fact that the resurrection really happened. I mean, according to an exhaustive analysis by uh, Gary Habermas in his book, The Historical Jesus, he surveys 1,400 academic sources published since 1975, written in uh, French, English, German, and he says, he shows that nowadays the vast majority of scholars, and this includes people who are not religious, they don't have a stake in the matter, they agree to four facts of history. So let's close the Bible. Four facts of history. Number one, Jesus died on a Roman cross on Friday and he was buried in a tomb. Historians believe this. Secondly, that tomb was empty on Sunday morning. Number three, many witnesses testified, and they got into trouble for it, that they saw Jesus alive multiple times after he had died. That they met him and they even ate with him. And number four, even the skeptic James... And the mortal enemy of Christians, Saul of Tarsus, were convinced that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And they both willingly died rather than recant. Uh, James was stoned and, Pete and Paul was beheaded. So what do you do with these facts? I mean, they're facts of history. Well, number one, you could say it's an hallucination. They're all hallucinated. They thought they saw Jesus alive. But hang on. There's one place we know that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. It's pretty hard unless everybody's taking ecstasy or something, or you know, LSD, to all have an hallucination and to have the same hallucination. And then the disciples, when they meet him, they're struck by the fact that he's eating broiled fish. This is not really the normal stuff of um, hallucinations. <laughs> or was it a hoax? That's the other claim. Did the disciples steal the body, for example? But that doesn't add up. How are men and women who put everything on the line, their homes, their families, their lives, for their testimony about Jesus? I mean, had they fabricated a fake story, all would be revealed the moment someone holds a knife to your throat and says, come on, did Jesus really rise again from the dead? Oh, I was just kidding. But no, they, they, they take the knife. Most of the apostles are martyred. And how do you explain a bunch of disciples that are cowardly locked away in a room because they're so freaked out that Jesus just died? And yet, you know, 40 days later, they're standing up saying, Jesus is alive, being killed for it down the line. How do you explain the psychological shift in these people outside of the fact that they really believed that they'd seen the risen Lord? So there's strong evidence for the resurrection as a fact of history. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away. She's still got the same theory. And I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him. So that explains. 
she hasn't actually made eye contact with this person yet. She just assumes it's, you know, it's the gardener. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So the resurrection of Jesus is a rebooting of creation. It also leaves some evidence, which I'm glad for. You know, not crazy if you believe Jesus is alive. But thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus leads to encounters with Jesus. I mean, Mary Magdalene must have followed Peter and John back to the tomb. They have now returned home, verse 10. But she stays to take a closer look. Mary loved Jesus enough to come to the tomb, not just first, but she comes back a second time. And she's broken by the experience of the missing body. She clearly loves Jesus. We're told in Luke chapter 8 that he had delivered her from seven demons. <laughs> and Jesus now pours out his love on her. If there's a lesson here, it's this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I mean, she's engulfed in grief. She looks down into the tomb. But she sees something that John and Peter hadn't. Two angels. They inquire about her weeping. She explains her loss to them. At this point, Mary, dizzied by the news, yet still doubting and weeping apparently, departs from the tomb. But before she's able to leave the garden, she becomes the first eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. And first, she doesn't recognize him. Had some changes taken place in his resurrected body? Or is it, like I said, more likely that she just hadn't looked in his face? Or her eyes were filled with tears? But she knows it's him. Not when she sees him, but when she hears him. And you know how your family can say your name in a way that no stranger can? Julie. Say my name. <laughs> he says, Mary, in a way that only he can. And immediately she, she knows it's him. This is the second reason that I think I'm not crazy to worship Jesus along with so many of you this morning and 3.8 million churches on the planet. And, and you know, there's evidence for the resurrection, okay? But there's also the experience of the risen Jesus. It's because he rose again from the dead that we can now encounter him. I've experienced his presence at times, a gentle reassurance or a whisper, at other times, something more like being enveloped by liquid love. And I'm not alone in this. Millions of others who have called on Jesus' name over the centuries have, have similar stories to tell. For example, that famous philosopher-scientist Blaise Pascal. You know, he was a guy who, who tried to figure things out with his head and he did some good work in philosophy and, um, and science. But he had an experience. <laughs> and it so radically impacted him, he wrote it down on paper and he stitched it inside his coat. And only when he died did they find it. And on this paper it says, the year is 1654, Monday, November 23. From about 10.30 in the evening to about half an hour after midnight. Okay? And, then he, and then comes a series of hastily written words from little phrases from the scriptures. And they all vibrate with the experience of this luminous, this, the excitement of this luminous experience. And, and, and it starts off with the word fire written in the middle. And then, and then he speaks about God of Abraham, God of Isaac. God of Jacob, not of the philosophers, God of Jesus, Jesus Christ, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, joy, joy, more tears, tears of joy. <laughs> Such a profound experience. He's like, I've got to write it down. I've got to stitch it close to my heart. I must never forget. I must never doubt. I must never doubt. 
Doubt is a normal part of the Christian faith, by the way. But there are wonderful times when doubt is washed away. <laughs> and it's as though you could see him and sense him. And it's like he's in the room with you. Are you 120% sure that he's real and alive? And sometimes you need to do exactly what he did. Like, stitch that into your memory. And don't doubt in the dark what you knew to be true in the light. Because darkness comes after that. You pull it out and you just remind yourself of these experiences. And then you remind yourself that back behind the experience of Jesus is the fact of his resurrection. You're not crazy to believe in him. You're not crazy to call on his name. You're not crazy to turn to him first when you're in trouble. You're not crazy to bank your whole life on his word and his teachings. You're not crazy to organize your entire life around everything that's important to him. You're completely sane, in fact. So the resurrection of Jesus is the rebooting of creation. The resurrection of Jesus leaves some evidence. The resurrection of Jesus leads to encounters with Jesus. And then my last point. The resurrection restores the place of woman in creation. The resurrection of Jesus restores the place of woman in creation. I mean, Jesus is the star of the resurrection. But the person who comes in pretty... They're looking pretty awesome in John 20 is Mary Magdalene. I mean, Peter runs. That's an act of devotion to the tomb. And he finds the evidence that Jesus is resurrected. But there's no evidence of him having real conviction. He just has a look. Yep, it's empty. Yep, there's linen. John is a little more dedicated, it seems. A little more in love, maybe. He outruns Peter. And he's granted more than mere evidence. We're told in verse 8 that he receives the gift of believing. Step aside, <laughs> today we've got the, the two oceans marathon. You've got, you've got Peter, you've got John in front, but they're number two and three. Winning the race is Mary Magdalene. She outstrips both of Jesus' closest disciples. She goes to the tomb first. She shows the most grief when she finds that the body is missing. She returns to the tomb a second time and then outstays the others who go home. And she's willing to even ask other strangers, do you know where he is? Do you know where he is? And what does she receive in return? A face-to-face encounter with the living one in which he heals her broken heart and instantly replaces her agony and her despair with astonishment and delight. And he also grants her a gripping sense of mission with the words, go and tell the brothers that I'm alive. She's the first person who gets the job of telling the world. She's the first person who knows the truth. And one of the things when you read the four Gospels, you realize that in that ancient world, that when it came to witnessing an event in a court case, the witness of a woman was not that credible. In fact, they used to say, a hundred women... If a hundred women say this is what happened and one man stands up and says, no, this happened, trust the one man over the hundred women. I mean, that was rabbinic law. And yet Jesus trusts to women the most important news in the world. And we're told, not in John, but we're told in Luke, that when Mary gets to the disciples and says, I've seen him, I've spoken with him, their first response, you're talking nonsense. They literally use that word. You're talking nonsense. And of course, they're a bit embarrassed because they're evening, they meet Jesus for themselves. The end of John chapter 20. And we're told that Jesus rubs their noses in their failure to listen to their sisters. 
rubs their noses in it. But think about this. This makes undoubtable the lesson he is trying to teach us men right at the launch of the church in the world. Learn to accept God's word in the mouth of your sisters. And that Jesus stitches this crucial insight into history's most important day. And that the writers of the Gospels record it means that it is a priority lesson for all subsequent communities of Christ followers that we must never forget. Can I just do a quick little advert? Because it's so perfectly timed for what we're doing the next three weeks. We're doing a series called How God Sees Women. Actually, it wasn't my idea. The signal leaders say, we've got to do it. I wrote a book called How God Sees Women. So I would have been self-promoted if I thought about it. It was their idea. So for the next three Sundays, we're looking at how God sees women. And we're going to do that in the morning. We've got three, you know, we're going to speak about Genesis 1 to 3, a partnership made in paradise. Then we're going to look at how Pastor Priscilla uh, ends the patriarchy in the church. And then we're going to look at... Um, um, Ephesians 5 where it says wives submit to husbands what does that mean but in the evenings we're doing something different usually we just meet on Sundays but for the next three Sundays we're meeting at 5 o'clock here 5 o'clock we're not doing church in that there's no singing we're going to arrive to complimentary snacks and drinks and then uh, we're going to do different content than what we're doing in the morning so next Sunday night Judy's going to start and speak about her journey into equality in ministry and marriage, you know, through scripture. And it's been an interesting journey. And I think there'll be something in her story that'll help men and women make sense of why this is a journey for so many people. In the following week, I'm going to speak about the most important aha moments I had when I was studying scripture on this and researching for my book that made the change my mind. And then thirdly, we're going to have a bit of a panel where we're going to try apply the gender equality that's taught in the scripture to marriage, to ministry, to the way we raise sons and daughters, the way we see ourselves, the way we treat each other, the way we treat women in society, women in leadership in the church, women in leadership in society. We just want to touch on those important subjects. So we want to actually camp around this important theme because it's so important that Jesus put it in the resurrection story. On this topic, what is the first word to come out of the risen Lord's mouth? Is it salvation? Is it the church? Is it glory? <laughs> the first word to come out of his mouth is woman. <laughs> woman. Don't miss that. The resurrected Jesus not only gives women the first crucial ministry in the new era of resurrected reality, he also elevates them to a new level of honored equality and potential ministry impact. John's gospel tells us that Jesus was raised on the first day, which takes us back <laughs> To the Garden of Eden. What happens in the Garden of Eden? Eve carries the enslaving message to Adam. Eat this fruit. It's a devastating story. Jesus reverses the curse. Now the daughter of Eve, Mary Magdalene, carries not the enslaving message, but the emancipating message to the sons of Adam. He is alive! He is alive. And just like that, a whole new world breaks into the midst of this old and broken one, bringing with it the glorious possibility of women standing shoulder to shoulder beside men in the front lines of the mission of God. So yes, the resurrection restores the place of women in creation, in the church, which is just the fourth thing we learned in John 20 today. The first one was the resurrection of Jesus is the rebooting of creation. 
Just why it's the place we go to for newness, for, for the breakthrough of barriers, for the removing of stones, for healing. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus leaves some evidence. No, you're not crazy if you believe Jesus is alive. You're not crazy if you're excited to worship him. You're not crazy if you pray to him every day. And thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus leads to encounters with Jesus. Okay, that's the end of my message. Can we pray? <laughs> you just want to stand up. This is your way of changing mode. And uh, Jesus, thank you that you're alive. Thank you that you're present with us. It is quite an exciting day in the Christian calendar. It's an exciting day in history. And it's an exciting day in my history. And, and in the history of so many people here today. Jesus, help us to trust in you, to turn to you, to believe in you, to see things like you see them. To give you our lives, to love you like Mary loved you. Thank you that as we seek you, we will find you. As we call in your name, you'll make yourself known. Let us be a community where so many people encounter you. With these millions of stories that have already unfolded, that they will continue to fold in our community as more and more of us encounter Jesus, not only on our own, but when we're together in homes or on Sundays, talking, singing, praying, listening. Jesus, make yourself welcome in our lives. Make yourself welcome in this community. And then I think of those of you who may be being on the edge going, hmm, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Maybe today, I don't know, is this, the right, is this your day? I had a day called my day. Maybe today's your day that you just go, oh my, I get it. I get it, he's alive, he's real. I get it, he's interested in my life. It's not just the name of Mary on his lips, but even today, maybe as you're listening to this message, he's saying your name. He's saying your name. He's, he's shining a light on you, saying today's your day. No, it's not a coincidence you're here. He's saying your name. And if, if, he is, if he's doing that, you know who you are because you can feel it in your heart. You can feel God's Spirit moving in on your life. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to trust in Jesus. There's a first day for you. This is the first day for you <laughs> of trusting in Jesus. What a perfect day in the year, by the way, to trust in Jesus. Easter. It means every Easter you can remind yourself that was the day when it started for me. That I started to trust in Jesus and talk to Jesus and turn to Jesus. That's you. Can I just guide you where you are? Just a simple prayer of trusting in God. Uh, you can pray it under your breath where you are. God, thank you for sending your son. Can you say words like that under your breath then? God, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Can you say that to him? Jesus, thank you that you're alive. I believe it. I trust in you. I turn to you. Come and live in me by your spirit. Make me new. Forgive my sins. Take me into your family. Take me into your kingdom. Teach me to trust you. Teach me to follow you. Amen. You prayed that prayer for the first time. Something like it. Welcome to the kingdom. It's a big party and it carries on forever. Hey guys, thanks so much for coming today. There's no need to rush off. Mandy... When uh, he started working for Signal just a few weeks ago, when in the job interviews, we said, is there anything else? And she said, well, I like to cook. Yeah. So Mandy, what have you prepared for our hungry bellies this morning? <laughs> S- Nothing matches the sunset.
Cinnabons, nothing much. You taste the Cinnabons and you tell me if you think they're nothing much. Hey everyone, welcome. See you next week. Yeah.